This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we conclude our spring series of programs focusing on the political turmoil in Venezuela. But first, Sierra Hancock has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Members of the Venezuelan government are raising concerns about the elections this year for the country's National Assembly. The head of the National Assembly, one of the top leaders of the ruling Socialist Party, Diaz Dado Cabello, went on national television this week and said he expects the opposition parties to cheat. The Venezuelan opposition is going to use fraud. When you listen to them about how they are going to win, they always include an important detail. They say they are going to win a majority in the National Assembly and other key offices so they can change the government. This is basically a coup. Opposition leaders have expressed concerns that President Nicolas Maduro may suspend the elections. Recent polls show Maduro and his Socialist Party currently have the support of only about 28 percent of Venezuelan voters. We will have more on Venezuela and concerns about its government later on this program. The president of Chile, Michelle Bachelet, suspended her entire cabinet this week. She gave cabinet ministers three days to submit their resignations before she would name a new group. Bachelet's administration has been rocked by corruption scandals and her public approval ratings are the lowest of her two terms in office, hovering at just over 30 percent. One of those scandals involved her daughter-in-law, who obtained a $10 million bank loan to make some lucrative and controversial real estate transactions. Corruption investigators are also digging into the finances of one of the most popular politicians in Latin America, the former president of Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who was universally called Lula. Investigators want to know if Lula traded his powerful influence in the region for financial favors. The main target of the inquiry is Lula's relationship to one of Brazil's largest construction firms, Odebrecht. The probe will look into both Lula's relationship with the firm while he was in office and after he left the presidency. Investigators want to see if the president traded favors to get the construction firm's special projects in Venezuela and Africa. Losing a book could be like losing its author all over again. Thieves stole a signed first edition of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's book, 100 Years of Solitude, this week. The book was on display at the International Book Fair in Bogota. Last year, Garcia Marquez, the famed Nobel Prize winning author, died at the age of 87. So this year, the International Book Fair in his home country of Colombia decided to hold a special exhibit and give various themed presentations about his work. The book was on display as part of those presentations. Experts value the book at $60,000, but the owner says he felt the work was priceless. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock. Thanks, Sierra. Regular listeners may recall our interview last week with the Council General of Venezuela in Chicago, Jesus Rodriguez Espinosa. During that interview, the Consul General advanced the theory that the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration 
may have been behind the smuggling of more than a ton of cocaine on an Air France plane. At the end of the day, there were a, a lot of uh, traces of a connection of the DEA with the whole case. The investigation in Venezuela at some point point to people related to the DEA, and that's not something new. I mean, uh, sometimes the DEA uh, create uh, the, 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 the tr some traffic uh, networks in order to, you know, for political reasons, but also to, I mean, I mean, a lot of people say that DEA is one of the biggest carter of drugs in the world, and I believe that that's partially true. French investigators could not rule out that theory, but they had pinned their allegations primarily on the Venezuelan military as the organizers of the smuggling plot. And four members of the Venezuelan National Guard are facing charges in Caracas related to the case. But what Rodriguez Espinosa did not say is that this theory did not begin with investigative journalists. Instead, it was covered in the media because President Nicolás Maduro had promoted an alternative theory of the crime. Such examples of using conspiracy theories as part of political spin shows how leveling the grandiose allegation has become an art in Venezuela. One expert on that is Hugo Perez Arnaiz. Perez Arnaiz is the author of the blog called the Venezuela Conspiracy Monitor. He also writes for the Washington office on Latin America's blog on Venezuela. And he's a professor at the Universidad Central de Venezuela. We talked to Paris Onais about politics in Venezuela, along with the jailings of key opposition figures, such as Leopoldo Lopez and Mayor Antonio Ledesma of Caracas. Here are excerpts from the second part of our conversation, recorded via Skype from Bilbao, Spain. One of the key things is that Maduro has been claiming something that you could call, well, he wasn't the first to claim it. Uh, Jose Vicente Rangel, the journalist, was the first one to claim, to make up this word, continuous coup. I think that's the correct translation of golpe continuado. I'm not sure, ongoing coup, yes. or something like that. The idea was that, that you know, it's it's not, it, this is almost a contradiction in terms, right? Because the coup is a coup that happens in a, in a, in, in a very short period of time. But the idea was that there, there was an element of a permanent conspiracy. It was not just that, that uh, one day some militaries try to, you know, uh, uh, downthrow the government. No, no, this this was a permanent conspiracy that was ongoing. Not only that, but this permanent conspiracy, which includes coups and, and you know, attempts to violently take over the government, also includes a wide variety of uh, actions that they have termed, you know, the economic war, the psychological war, the media war, Yesterday I was reading about the cultural war. All of these things are part of one big conspiracy. So what happens here? What, uh, talking about the evidence, you know, what happens here? Um, there's there's this practice that you've probably seen in the in the in, when Maduro speaks, he, he and and many other government officials. They'll say, well, we we have uh, we have discovered this plot to kill uh, government officials, or we have discovered this plot to bomb. Caracas with uh, gunship planes, and uh, we have the evidence. We are going to show the evidence Tuesday. Stay tuned. We're going to show the evidence Tuesday. Tuesday comes. There's no evidence, but then again that day they make the same claims, and maybe that day they'll put something out, like, for example, this transition document, which is obviously it's not calling for a coup. 
I'm, I'm talking about the transition document signed by Ledesma, Maria Corina Machado, and Leopoldo Lopez. But, you know, I'll, I'll put it forth as evidence because if you, uh, uh, Maduro might say, if you, if you read between the lines, you will find that there's a call for a coup there. Okay, so Tuesday passes, no new evidence. But on Thursday, he'll put forth another conspiracy theory. He'll put forth, well, now I've discovered that, the, uh, that, that from Colombia they were going to send paramilitaries to, to kill me. And maybe someone will ask, well, what about the, the evidence of the previous conspiracy theory? Oh, I, I already showed that. So what's happening here? You're not really showing any, any evidence. What you're doing is constantly claiming, uh, um, you know, a conspiracy, alleging a conspiracy. And what this does is it produces the sensation of mounting evidence, although there's no evidence there. But you have claimed this so many times. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Rodriguez Torres, the previous minister of interior, was a master at doing this. He would, he would, he would call a news conference and say, "I have evidence of a coup attempt, or I have evidence of a conspiracy." Here is the evidence. The evidence, in the case of Rodriguez Torres, was I don't know, a, 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 um, a, how do you call that? A slideshow presentation or a PowerPoint presentation? Well, where he would put pictures of opposition leaders connected with lines and arrows and circles and, and all these uh, flow charts and, and things like this. And he would say, here's the evidence. Of course, that's no evidence. When reporters pressed him and said, well, but what is the real evidence? Oh, well, I will show it next week. Same story. And this this was, and then Maduro would uh, come out and say, as uh, uh, we have shown evidence and my minister, Rodrigo Torres, uh, last week, he showed the evidence, and they never really showed the evidence. But, you know, everyone was talking about evidence being there. It's just a tease to the future of, of yeah, evidence. It's, I, I just wonder, in a, in a democratic system, when we talk about um, opposition parties who uh, mm-hmm. strongly would like presidents to step aside, I, I'm sure the Republicans in the United States would like President Obama to leave before his term I'm is sure over. Yeah. Um that's not really viewed as conspiratorial. That's just being part of the opposition. One could argue whether it's a loyal opposition, but yeah. certainly it's not viewed as conspiratorial. Well, that's the thing. I mean, one of the uh, one of the effects of this uh, of these type of rhetorics is the creation of uh, either us or them mentality and a, a very strong siege mentality, where your political adversaries are not just political adversaries; they're enemies. Because, of course, they're in cahoots with a very evil and powerful external conspiracy. So when, 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 when you have a rhetoric that, that especially is couched on, on, on a strong anti-imperialist discourse, which I would argue is, is the meta-discourse behind all this, anti-imperialism, a very strong and a peculiar form of anti-imperialism, but anti-imperialism. And, you know, you just, uh, you can't consider, when you read a document like the transition document, you're not reading it as document of a group of politicians that want to, you know, uh, beat you in an election. You're reading it as the work of traitors who are enemies and who are, you know, uh, traitors of the fatherland because they are in cahoots with the imperial powers. So that puts the 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 uh, the, the the political discussion in a whole different level. 
far from uh, a normal <laughs> democratic discussion where you, you you know your adversaries want you out of power. That's that's for sure. But you know you, you think they're going to overthrow you by violent means. The the the, the thing that you pointed out the uh, uh, talking about transition it's been, that's been very curious because. Um, the document that the, the, the president has put forth as evidence, the main evidence, well, I will, I will talk to you about other forms of evidence as well that I, that I forgot to mention, but the main evidence is this transition document signed by Mayra Corina, Machado, uh, Ledesma, and Leopoldo Lopez. And this document, if you read it, I don't know if you, you have the chance or, or your listeners have the chance to read it, but it's readily available on, on internet. It's a very general sort of I would, I would, you know, argue a very neoliberal sort of document proposing decentralization and and markets and, and so forth, right? Uh, nothing very, very impressive and nothing very uh, coupist or offensive. I I would argue it does mention the word transition, that there should be a a, a fast, a quick transition of gov- government. Now, what the government is arguing is something very curious. Because the word transition is not in the Constitution as, as part of the you know, uh, secession mechanisms of government. I don't know what, what that chapter is called, but it's not mentioned in the Constitution. Then, obviously, that document is a coded call for a coup. This is very curious because, you know, the government is always speaking about social, uh, transition to socialism and so forth. But it gives you an idea of how when when you're really into this mentality, when you really, you know, take to the extreme these conspiracy theories, you start reading things into uh, your political adversaries discourse that, you know, it, it, it's hard. To, it, it's it, they're really not there. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the other form of evidence that the, uh, the government's been producing, which is also very interesting. They are um, claiming that the uh, they're basically using the confessions of the – there are so far, I think the last count was 10 Air Force officers that uh, were arrested, you know, on allegations that they were part of this coup. The coup has been called by different government officials with different names. Some called the blue coup because it was supposed to be Air Force officers that were involved with this. Others have called it the Jericho operation. I have no idea why, but it's the Jericho operation. And they're using what seem to be the confessions of these officers, of these 10 officers, or at least some of them, accusing and, and you know confessing to having plotted this uh, this coup with Ledesma and with Julio Borges, the, one of the leaders of Capriles Party, the Primera Justicia Party. Um, this is very, this is very interesting because, uh, as you know, in 20th century history, the use of confession as evidence was a very important part of other famous cases of conspiracy theories uh, used politically in the 20th century. And, uh, and and the government is using these confessions as evidence to incriminate Ledesma and Borges, which of course wouldn't hold in any court, uh, at, at, I think, in any normal court, because you know uh, these confessions would probably be the uh, would probably merit inquiries and investigations, but they cannot be used as 
unless there's other evidence, unless there's far farther evidence as incriminating evidence against Ledesma or Julio Borges. That's the other piece of evidence, the confessions of the of the officers. You have uh, those confessions, you have the document, the transition document, and yeah, that's that's about it. That's what the government has presented so far. And, and of course, uh, recordings, which is another favorite of the Venezuelan government, uh, recordings of conversations of opposition leaders. And uh, Diosao Cabello, the president of the National Assembly and vice president of the Socialist Party, in his TV show called El Masodando, con El Masodando, I think it's called, and and he has shown there some recordings of uh, opposition leaders, mainly of the Social uh, Christian Democrat Party, COPEI, uh, arguing apparently among them and suggesting, it, that's his interpretation, of course, a coup. Now, if you listen to these recordings, uh, it's hard. It's also hard to, to, to you. You really have to read between lines to, to, uh, uh, to understand that they're supposedly talking about a coup. But Cabello, uh, you know, is 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 doing that. Those are the three types of evidence that they're that they're you know they that they have published so far. They importantly, importantly, that evidence also reveals that. Opposition parties are spied upon by the government, does it not? Oh, this is yes. This happens all the time. It's very much accept. Uh, accept. There's a law against this, actually. Uh, the, the 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 police services are not supposed to tap into people's phone without judicial orders and so forth, like in most countries. But it has come such a widespread practice. That, that nobody even questions it anymore in Venezuela, I, I think. I mean, people still question it, but it's, it's become very widespread. And the other issue is that, of course, if this is evidence, if this is incriminating evidence against Ledesma or Julio Borges or the Copay party, you know, I, 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 I don't know if it's legal, but I would think it's not appropriate to show it on national TV when there's uh, investigation open on these people, right? Uh, Diosao Cabello does this all the time. Other government officials and 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 uh, journalists also do it and have done it before. Mario Silva was very famous for doing this until he as well, but <laughs> was the victim of a, a recording that that where he accused uh, Diosao Cabello of being corrupt and so forth and and fell momentarily out of grace. Now he's being rehabilitated, which is very interesting. And I'm sure he'll be showing more recordings. And you have to ask yourself, where do they get these recordings if not from the police service, from, from the intelligence police? And that's also very troublesome. Thank you so much. Hugo Perez Arnaiz, a professor at Universidad Central de Venezuela, one of the co-writers of the Venezuelan Politics and Human Rights blog of the Washington Office on Latin America, joining us via Skype from Bilbao, Spain, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. A Venezuelan military tribunal convicted and sentenced eight military officers this week in connection to the Operation Jericho coup plot. The officers will serve various sentences, ranging from five to eight years in prison. Coming up, more analysis of the political situation in Venezuela. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly two million children die from preventable diseases. Each day... 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. 
The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Michael McCarthy is a former researcher for the Carter Center's team evaluating elections in Venezuela. The Carter Center has often validated the work of the Venezuelan National Council on Elections, the CNE, the government body charged with overseeing the country's electoral system. But after a long delay, the Carter Center released a detailed and critical report of the 2013 presidential elections, saying the ruling Socialist Party had created an uneven playing field for political discourse, a political system where almost every advantage was in the hands of the ruling party. Here's the second part of our interview with McCarthy, now a researcher with American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. We spoke to him via Skype from Washington, D.C., about the jailing of opposition leaders, including Mary Ledesma of Caracas. We've been asking this question almost since the inception of this program. Do we have a real democracy in Venezuela? Is this the incident that tells us that we've tipped from a democratic system into something that, that is much more of an autocracy? Well, autocracy, you know, refers primarily to the control by an individual at the top of the system. What what I think is that in Venezuela, the last standing institution that can help the, the country stay on the side of the democratic ledger of the regime type book is 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 the question of the quality of the elections. I think other institutions in the country have for some time revealed a deteriorating a level of deteriorating quality that is so bad that I don't think they qualify as democratic. And I think that the elections this year uh, are going to be the decisive factor. The, those are the parliamentary elections that look like they're going to be held at the end of the year in December. But when we're in an atmosphere where we're throwing mayors, elected mayors, in jail, right. mm-hmm. um, that doesn't exactly create an atmosphere of free speech and and the ability for people to openly campaign, it restricts the the ability for people to actually debate because they may be afraid that they say something that puts them under suspicion, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. That's what I was just going to say. I said that I'm not optimistic that this year's election is going to give us a high enough quality electoral process that is going to allow uh, serious analysis to consider classifying Venezuela as a democracy. I'm not optimistic about that taking place this year. I don't I think we're going to see a continuing continuing decline in the quality of the electoral system and I and I fear that that's going to place Venezuela in a situation where it's going to be very 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 difficult to define it as a democracy still. I think there are a lot of people on the right right now sitting at home saying we told you so. We we told you that this was going to happen and and people who take more of a centrist or even center-left view are now adopting the, the point of view that maybe some of those criticisms about free speech and autocracy may have been correct. Well, look, I, I don't think there's any question that, that in Venezuela there have been deep-lying problems with the quality of human rights, with the justice system, with executive power, uh, with freedom of expression. All those things have been major problems in Venezuela for, for quite some time. It's always been about the elections in some ways, and now that these, now that now that these events are directly bearing upon the quality of electoral competition, that's where I think the line is going to be crossed or not. Okay, 
So, I mean, the, the, no one, I don't think anyone's really ever said that Venezuelan's human rights situation or freedom of expression is perfectly adequate or anything like that. Those who have, you know, come to, to, to take a more nuanced position or in, in some instances defend the government have tried instead to couch the Venezuelan problem in a longer historical context to say, look, problems with the freedom of press and the justice system you know, existed in the 1990s. If you look at some of the most serious criticisms of Venezuelan democracy, those that are accepted by the left and the right, those criticisms clearly demonstrate that there was not full freedom of the press and that there was not a clear separation of powers. However, there were important differences during the, you know, the Punto Fijo pre-Chavez period. You know, they were able to bring a, uh, uh, in an, an open investigation against the sitting president. The, the National Assembly, pardon me, the Congress was able to do that against Carlos Andres Perez. And that was very important to being able, in forcing him to resign, because otherwise he probably would have been impeached. That is a very, very clear difference. I don't think that could have taken place during the Chavez period. So I don't think there is separation of powers in Venezuela. I think the last standing institution is the electoral system. And right now, I'm not optimistic that it's going to, you know, um, show any sign of improvement. What haven't we covered that you think is important? The international dimension of this crisis right now is, is I think, the most interesting element because the Venezuelan opposition is very divided. Those that want to participate in the elections this year and place their eggs in that basket of fighting through the system have some power and influence, but they're not necessarily in full control of the opposition. They believe that they need to fight through institutions uh, and sort of use liberalism against illiberalism to come to power. That, I think, is very, very important and a useful message to be carried uh, uh, you know, abroad as well in the international community. There are no quick fixes to this problem in Venezuela, and I think quick fixes could easily backfire, and that, I think, is my biggest concern. So I think that on the international front, this pressure is, is, is I think, welcome uh, uh, on one level, but I think there's also an important difference between uh, increased criticism on the government and trying to give, trying to create more spaces of pluralism in the country and the idea that this government is about to fall and that there needs to be a change right away. So I think the problem is this sort of threading the needle between increased international pressure or reduced international space for the government and the idea that, you know, we need to see regime change. When is the left going to give up on, on Nicolas Maduro? When is he out of excuses? Yeah. I mean, I think for public consumption, I think it's important to stress the, the institution of elections just because it's the only way they're going to get out of this. I mean, without 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 a really without either a quick fix solution backfiring or without, you know, political tensions really boiling over and getting into a really nasty situation of political violence. I mean, I think it, you can argue that Venezuela is already in a sort of proto conflict situation because of the levels of violence in the country and the breakdowns in the justice system. There's no doubt about that. But it could get a lot worse, is the thing. It could it could get a lot worse. Oh, yeah. No, we we saw worse last year. Yeah. So we'll we'll see where it goes. The campaign hasn't even begun, and that's where we're really going to see, you know, the real sort of manifestation of the you know lack of freedom of expression in the country, right? I mean, that's where the unlevel playing field is really going to come into view. And I don't know, just as a reference point for you on if you know if you want to you know sort of document these changes in a numerical fashion. 
there's this project now called the uh, Electoral Integrity Project, which is run between Harvard and University of Sydney. And they publish a, a, a year in elections review and they rank the quality of all elections globally, producing an index of election quality, comparing, you know, to the, comparing elections in Venezuela with those in, I don't know, uh, Mozambique, every every country in the world, right? And they do the comparison the same way that Transparency International does, by interviewing experts. So it's a perception of electoral integrity. So the 2012 elections uh, qualified as mid-level quality. The 2013 elections went down to low-level quality. Thank you, Michael McCarthy, a research fellow at American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, joining us on Latin Pulse via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks. My pleasure, Rick. Thanks for joining us for our program on Venezuela. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and we're also now available via the podcasting service called Stitcher. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>